0: good morning. We'd like to welcome you guys all here on this third Sunday of Advent as we come together and continue to praise our God through this Advent season and prepare our hearts for his coming. Please stand and join us as we sing together.
1: On the third Sunday of Advent, we light three candles. Our hope grows stronger and our joy grows brighter as we prepare to celebrate Christ's coming. We remember also, in this time of shadows, those whose tears still water the ground with sadness. And we pray that God will bring all people home with shouts of joy.
0: In God's promise, new heaven and new earth... The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Please stand as we continue in worship.
2: Christ has come, and we are here to worship you, to give glory to you, and we pray that our worship will please you, will honor you, and will help us follow you, and so we pray your blessing upon this time together and ask this through Christ Jesus, amen. There's a lot of sickness going around, so I want you to greet each other, shake hands at your own risk, so so take a moment and say hi to people who are here. A couple things I want to highlight, actually a couple more than a couple, uh, things I want to highlight happening in the life of the church. Tonight, 6 o'clock, we'll be back here for a time of singing Christmas carols. It's an annual tradition. We come together and sing the carols that you want to sing, uh, the carols in the hymnal. We have a number of sheets printed up with carols that aren't in the hymnal that are popular. And so we hope you'll join us. There's a children's choir that's going to be singing a few songs tonight as well. And um, if you have an instrument that you want to play, doesn't matter your your level of expertise, um, come and play. Just come a little bit early, maybe quarter to six, and uh, we'll we have chairs set up here at state music stands, and we'd love to have you uh, be a part of the orchestra playing tonight as we sing. After that, we'll be going to the community room for a cookie reception, and I know many of you here... Uh, our students. So if you don't have the opportunity to make cookies, it doesn't matter. Come anyway, there's always extra. And if you are making cookies and you can make some extra, that would be great. And whatever is left over tonight, we will package up and distribute through our food pantry. So we hope you'll join us tonight at six o'clock here for this time of singing carols. Next Sunday morning, uh, we will be, uh, begin our holiday schedule of one ten o'clock worship service. And you see in the insert in your bulletin about the upcoming weeks, Many of you, I know, will be gone during that time, but if you're here, take note of that schedule. Next Sunday, uh, we're getting together a choir to sing, and since it's one service, even if you don't normally come to the 11 o'clock service or part of the choir, I'd love to have you part of that group that's singing, and you see they're going to rehearse Tuesday night for a bit. Uh, also, Christmas Eve services uh, are uh, at 5 and 7, and if you're in town, love to have you be a part of those. They're they are similar services, and yet there are some differences in them as well. The 5 o'clock service has some things specifically geared to children. A couple of weeks ago, actually it's been a little bit more than that now, we collected food for the food pantry. Uh, food came in from the college as well. We wanted to give you an indication of just what the shelves look like after we put all that food in there. And uh, here's the interesting thing is that in the past six weeks, which is a little bit extended from when we collected this about four weeks ago, we have uh, given food out to 130 people in 29 families. The need just continues to grow. So the shelves, actually these pictures were taken a few weeks ago and the shelves are much uh, more bare now than they were then. So anytime you, have, you can donate food, if you want to donate cash, that will just help us. We can buy perishable items for families as they come. But the need is, I would suspect, is going to continue to increase as the winter moves forward. So we appreciate uh, your contributions to the food pantry. Uh, Also, just note that Wednesday activities this week uh, we will not be meeting for the next few weeks for children and and adults uh, through uh, the holiday season. There are always things that we're praying about. Uh, I want to add a couple of things to the prayer list. Donna Zoller's mother uh, died Thursday evening. Uh, they have gone, Jim and Don have gone to New Hampshire for the service, which will be on Tuesday. And also, of course, we want to pray about the uh, tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut. It, it's so difficult to, to wrap our minds around that event. And you know, we're all asking questions and we're all trying to figure it out. And uh, we need to pray for everyone who is involved there, everyone affected by that. And, and pray for God's grace and presence uh, among his people. And among his children that he deeply loves, there, and so we want to ask for God's God's mercy uh, in a very difficult and tragic situation.
0: The Bible readings today come from John chapter one verses six to eight, and also Luke chapter one verses five through seventeen. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both well advanced in years. Once Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the customs of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, we just ask the ushers to come forward as we bring our tithes and offerings.
2: Please be seated. We have the opportunity to pray together at this moment. And if you'd like to come and use the altar as a place where you pray, please join me. Jesus, Heavenly Father, we come to this moment of prayer, giving thanks that Christ is born. His entrance into this world has changed everything, given us hope in despair, life and death, healing in brokenness. This morning, we come acknowledging our need for Christ because we live in a world of brokenness and we are people who continually wrestle with brokenness. Father, we know the struggle in our lives of temptation, the temptation to to greed and immorality and divisiveness and gossip and bitterness and self-centeredness. We pray that you will forgive us. We know the brokenness of life in our illnesses and pain, in our grief, hurts. We pray that you will heal all of our diseases, that you will restore our relationships that have been fractured that you will comfort our hearts that are grieving. Father, we know the brokenness of this world as we struggle to understand the things that happen in this world. Our hearts, Father, have been broken for some time about the, the violence in so many places of the world and war and famine and poverty and this week we have been shaken to see the extent of evil that work in our world father we cannot comprehend the events that have placed taken place in Newtown We grasp for answers. Our emotions are all over the place. But Father, we know that you are present. We pray for your healing mercy, for your comforting grace upon parents and grandparents and siblings and aunts and uncles and cousins, and community members, and neighbors, and classmates, and colleagues. Father, we pray that in the midst of this tragedy, your people will be a presence of comforting peace. In the midst of this tragedy, we will see you at work, loving caring wrap your arms of love and mercy around that whole community and we pray that that you will bring good out of this terrible tragedy holy father We thank you that in Jesus you have come to a world of broken people. Come again to us and transform us as you did those who first experienced your touch and your grace. We pray, Father, that we will be new people. People with new attitudes, new perspectives, new priorities new lives. Because once again today, we have entrusted ourselves to Christ. It is in His name that we offer our prayers. Remembering the prayer that He taught His disciples to pray that we now pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done
1: the star to a place unexpected Would you believe after all we projected A child in a manger lonely and small, the weakest of all Unlikeliest hero Wrapped in his mother's shawl Just a child, is this who we've waited?
2: Father, thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. We pray that you will help us to understand a bit more of how we prepare for the coming of Christ. And we ask this through Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. A wedding rehearsal, off-season training, extra hours in the library, running your lines for your part in the play for the 10th, 12th, 15th time, setting out your clothes and ironing them the night before, going to the store to make sure you have everything that you need and checking that list twice, cleaning just a little bit deeper for the guests that are coming to your house. What do all those things have in common? They're all about all ways that we prepare for something that's important to us, and and anything that is important to us, we prepare for. I've come to believe, and I've seen it in my own in my own life. If something's not that important to us, we won't spend that much time preparing for it. If we're playing on a on a sports team and it's fun, but it's not really vital to us we don't give ourselves fully to practice if we're part of a of a drama production and and it's fun but it's not really something we're invested in rehearsals are kind of a chore if we if we want to get good grades but we're not all that concerned about it then studying becomes a continual option that we neglect. And we know all about that. We all can think of things right now. We would say, that's important to me, and I spend lots of time preparing, and that's not so important, and we'll see what happens. And and we're continually faced with those decisions about preparation all the time. Because the reality is, the success of, of of a production is not when the curtain opens in front of the audience on opening night, it's everything that went into the rehearsals weeks and weeks before and all the investment we made in that. And, and the success of an athletic team isn't when you step onto the court or you step onto the field in front of the cheering crowd. It's all those early mornings and late nights and extra practices when you're in the gym and when no one's there or when lots of people are there. Or you're on the field and you give yourself to that. And the success of getting good grades doesn't take place when you sit in the, in the class like you're going to do, many of you, this coming week and you open up a blue book and you start your exam. It's all the time that you spent leading up to that, reading and rereading and rereading again all the material and, and committing it into your minds. If the end result is important to you, you prepare. If it's not that important, we don't. There's nothing more important, no more important event in the history of the world than the coming of Christ into the world. And God understands that if we're going to get that, if it's going to impact us, if it's going to have the, the, the bear on our lives the way He intends, preparation is essential. And so God sends John the Baptist. He sends John because in case everybody, all the people of Israel who have missed everything God has said about the Messiah for the centuries before, if they've missed all of that in the Old Testament, no one can say, hey, I didn't know. So he sends John. And John comes into the picture. And, and in, in John's gospel, the Apostle John's gospel, he says, beginning verse 6, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only a witness to the light. Now when I read that prologue, this, sort of this hymn about Jesus, it surprises me that in the middle of it, there's these three verses about John. It seems out of place to me. And then remember that in that time, even in near the end of the first century when John pens this gospel, there are people who are still more enamored with John the Baptist than they are with Jesus. And I think John the author wants to set the record straight. As awesome a prophet as John the Baptist is, and as necessary as he is, and vital as he is, he is not the light. He's a witness to the light. And sometimes I think in our celebrity culture, where we become so enamored with even Christian celebrities... the people who teach us about God and the people who have invested in us, we can become more enamored with those people than we can with Christ. And this is just a subtle reminder about that. But the bigger reason for putting John into this story is to tell people to prepare. You need to understand that, that he is coming to Prepare. John comes, God sends John into the world in order to prepare people for Christ who's about to come. Because the reality is the people who miss Christ are the people who miss John. And the people who are unreceptive to Christ are the people who are unreceptive to John. Because if they aren't willing to listen to John, they're going to be willing to listen to Jesus. Because obviously, Jesus isn't that important to them. The coming of the Messiah into the world is not that important to them because they aren't willing to prepare. And they aren't willing to listen to John's words of preparation. In Luke chapter 20, there's this really fascinating dialogue between Jesus and the scribes and the, and the chief priests in the temple. And they come to Jesus and they say, who gave you the authority to do all this? What's your authority for, for preaching and teaching and doing all the things you're doing? And Jesus says, you answer my question, I'll answer yours. And Jesus, and Jesus says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it just human? And these guys get together in a little huddle and say, what do we say? Because if we say it was from heaven, if we say it was something from God, then Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you believe him? Why did you pay attention to him? But if we say it's just from earth, if it's just human, then the people are going to riot and stone us because they believe he's from God. So they take the coward's way out and say, we don't know. We're not going to answer your question. Jesus says, fine, then I won't answer yours either. Jesus did have an interesting sense of humor. But you see the correlation. The same people who won't accept Jesus are the people who don't accept John. And we're reminded that, that the work of God in this world and in our lives, individually and corporately, is about preparation. Preparation. Why is it that some people encounter Jesus and they embrace Him and others encounter Jesus and they reject him? Why is it that some people are, their hearts are sensitive to what Jesus has to say and who He is and the message He brings, and others are hard-hearted and cold about Jesus and His message? It's about preparation. It's about the condition of their hearts. And it is no different today. Why is it that some of us have experiences with God and we sense God taking us deeper and deeper in our walk with him? Because our hearts are open and sensitive and prepared. And so God sends John the Baptist as a messenger, as as the one to come and prepare the way. And John's message of preparation is rooted in this spirit of repentance. Each of the gospels, in one way or another, talks about John saying, in essence, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And when we go look at Luke's gospel, we find this interesting scenario of, of John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. He's a godly priest and, and he, he's in the, the temple, he's in, he's in the, the holy place and he's offering sacrifices for the people all by himself. And while he is there, an angel appears to him. It's one of those amazing moments. And an angel says to him, Zachariah, I know you and your wife Elizabeth haven't been able to bear children. We're going to do something about that. She's going to have a son. You're going to have a child. You're going to name him John and he is going to be special. And he is going to have a specific mission from God and that mission is to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And what what is that preparation going to look like? What is his message going to be? Verse 16 of Luke 1 says, Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. He will bring them back. That idea of repentance means to turn from one direction to another. And John will be a catalyst that God will use to help people do that. To help people prepare, to soften people's hearts, to help them see that they are, they are understanding God in a wrong way, that, that they need to, to let God to do a work in their hearts in order to be ready for the Messiah to come. And John's message will turn them. And the question is, what will that message look like? What does success look like for John. What will happen if the people of Israel truly listen to John, they embrace John's message, they they do what John is asking them to do, what will that look like? And the angel says in the next verse, He will go on before the Lord in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. How, what, how will that preparation be measured? The angel says, and this is not exclusive, this is not the only way they measure it, but the angel says here, there are two ways that you can that that they will, their preparation, their responsiveness to John will be measured. Father's hearts will be turned to their children. The disobedient will be turned to the wisdom of the Righteous. I think the second idea there is a little bit easier for us to grasp. We understand disobedient people turning to God, turning to what God wants for them. And I think in one sense that is a, it's an idea of salvation. The people who, have, who are disobedient to God, have, have rebelled against God, are now, their, their hearts are now turned toward God. But I don't think it's limited to that. I think it's a, he's talking here about a mindset, an attitude, a perspective in both of these scenarios. It's a, it's a mindset, and openness to the word of God in our lives. Now, I've had people through the years come to me and talk to me, give me what I would consider a truth from God into my life where they, they have the, I, I believe they have the best intentions and they're trying to help me and they've seen something in my life that needs to improve, that I've been blind to, or at least I needed to be jarred a little bit to grasp it. And sometimes they've come to me in gentleness and kindness and in a soft spirit and sometimes not. Sometimes they've come to me with... Uh, Honestly, a harshness. And, and, and what I, in my spirit, consider it kind of a criticalness. And in those moments, I, as I've looked back, I have realized that my openness, my sensitivity to their words has a lot to do with my sensitivity to God. If I reject what they have to say, if I, if I say to them, look, I'm not listening to you. I'm I'm not changing anything in my life. I I don't care if you're right or wrong. I'm not paying attention to it. And in fact, I, I, I can't imagine you're right. And I'm just rejecting outright anything you might say to me. Then my heart becomes hard and encased and like stone. Because who among us doesn't need to grow and learn and change? And more often than not, God speaks change into our lives through other people. Wisdom. And you can see why there's a direct correlation between hearing what people have to say, receiving it, maybe sometimes sifting through it a little bit to get to the wisdom. But being open and receptive to the words that people speak into our lives You can see the correlation between that openness and an openness to God in Christ. In Luke chapter 3, just a couple of chapters later, John the Baptist is out preaching. And, And John's one of those people whose word's pretty harsh. He says to the people gathered there, you brood of vipers. Wow. I'm surprised they all came back. But they did. They kept coming back to him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Well, in other words, what are you doing here? What do you want? What's your purpose for being here? And the religious leaders are all sort of standing off to the side, offended by what John has to say, and completely closed off to him. But the crowd, the common folk, come to John and say, you're right, we are brood of vipers. What do we do about it? What what should we do? And John says, if you have two coats, give one of them away to someone who doesn't have any. And the tax collectors come to him and say, what should we do? And he says, stop cheating people on their taxes. And the soldiers come to John and say, what do we do? And he says, stop using your position of power for personal gain. And the people who those religious leaders look at and say, those are disobedient people. Their lives are a mess. They don't understand God. They don't follow our rules and regulations. And in their minds, they would say, those are the disobedient. They hear John's words and their hearts are open and their hearts are changed. While those who are considered religious are left cold and hard and unresponsive to John, and ultimately to Jesus. There is something about our openness to God that is connected to our willingness to hear what people say into our lives and speak to us about changes, because more often than not, when God wants to change us and work in us, he often speaks to us about those things that need to be changed, that need to be different through other people. Will we hear them? But the other part of this, of this uh, word of preparation toward repentance is a little bit more confusing. Confusing. It's a little bit more surprising, might be a better word. Fathers turn turn the hearts of fathers to their children. You know, I've been pondering that for a couple of weeks, trying to think through what exactly does that mean. It's a, it's a quote from the prophet Malachi. The very last part of Malachi's prophecy, chapter 4, verse 6. The difference is, in Malachi's prophecy... The the prophet says that the one who comes will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to the fathers. And that's a little bit more palatable to us because it feels more even. And and it feels like it just sort of rounds things out. And some, actually some translations of Luke one seventeen actually word it that way. That families will be reconciled. That parents and children will come together. And that may well be the meaning. That may well be what's going on. But it just intrigues me that the angel doesn't say that. The angel simply says, the hearts of fathers will be turned to their children. And I think that's significant, that that's all the angel says. The hearts of fathers will be turned to their children as a sign of an openness to God speaking to people through his messenger of preparing for Christ. Now in ancient cultures, and honestly, even in most modern cultures, fathers have the majority of power. This little chart, I, I was thinking about putting this into a chart form, and this is the best that I could do, and it's probably a little bit simplistic, but I think it's fairly accurate that males have the power, females tend to be considered weak and vulnerable. And parents have power and children are weak and vulnerable and so as you can see the power rests in fathers and the vulnerability the most weakness in female children and John the Baptist and the angel says John is going to speak into the hearts of the people who have the power the people who who make decisions about the people who who don't have power, about the people who can't make decisions, about people who are vulnerable, children. And I think that's significant. When you look at the Gospels, Jesus, it's intriguing to me the stories that we find of Jesus and children. In one instance, I think it's Luke 9, or Mark 9, Jesus uh, is talking with people and he calls a child and puts this child among them. Get the sense maybe he brought the child and sat the child on his lap. And he said, whoever wants to follow me has to come like a little child. If you want to enter the kingdom, you have to become like a little child. Because the kingdom belongs to such as these. A chapter later, people are bringing children. Parents are bringing their children to Jesus to have him touch them and bless them. And the disciples say, get those kids out of here. Jesus doesn't have time for children. And Jesus rebukes the disciples. It is a harsh word that he speaks to them. It's probably comparable to you brood of vipers. He says to the disciples, what are you doing? Stop it. The kingdom of God belongs to children. I want children to come to me. Children are significant to me. But I suspect most of the time... We probably tend to see children the way the disciples do, not the way Jesus does. And it's one of the reasons why we miss so much of what God wants to do in our lives. Because if you're not sensitive to weak, vulnerable people, what would make us think that we would be sensitive when God speaks about weakness and vulnerability and humility into our lives? It's correlation. correlation. You know, I've come to the conclusion that, and I'm still wrestling with the tension of this, and I think there are probably some ways, some things to talk through about it, but something in my mind really firmly believes that you cannot mistreat children and be right with Christ. I, I just can't, I can't fathom that. And I was thinking about this week, obviously, and the tragedy in Newtown, and, and there's so many questions about that and, and so many things we don't understand and probably we will never understand as we're trying to wrap our minds around that and, and, and take in this heinous event, this heinous tragedy. And the one thing we do know is that this is an act of the evil one through a human being. This is an act of the evil one against what is precious to God. Because as we read the scriptures, children are precious to God. And the evil one hates not only God, but hates everything that is precious to God. And I am convinced that's one of the reasons why why children are mistreated so often in our world. And why the evil one prompts people to do heinous things to children. Because he knows that it strikes to the very heart of God. And he knows that if you can create trauma in the heart of a child, it will probably affect them for the rest of their life. And some of you are walking witnesses of that. And the evil one wants to strike at what is precious to God. Children. You see, the whole idea of accepting children, loving children, caring for children, it didn't start with Jesus. That's been God's plan and his mindset from the very beginning. When you go back into the Old Testament, back into the Levitical laws in Deuteronomy and Exodus and and Leviticus and Numbers, you hear God saying, look, I know there are nations around you who sacrifice children. You better not do that. Because I will punish you severely for treating children that way. It is abhorrent to me. But it's not just that. It's also the responsibility to train children. And God says to fathers, predominantly, but parents in general, you are responsible for training your children about me, to know me. You teach them at home and when you're out walking on the road and everywhere you go, you tell them about me. And the family home is the place where children learn about God. But it's not just about families. It's about the bigger church as well. Many of you don't have children. And maybe you will, maybe you won't have children in your life. Maybe you have children, but they're not at home right now. But we have a responsibility to our children. To be the church to them. That's why every time we dedicate children to God, the whole congregation stands and affirms their commitment to the child and to the family to do everything in our power to help them know Christ and to grow in Christ. And that may be through some kind of structured class setting. It may just be when we see them around and being kind to them and loving to them. Because our image of God and our image of the church is shaped more than anything by the people who are a part of the church. We all can think about times, if you grew up in the church, you can think about times when when you felt positive about the church because someone was positive towards you. And you think of negative experiences because people were negative towards you. And it shapes your vision of the church. I remember back when I was in fifth or sixth grade. Now, I'm not saying I was an angelic child by any means, but I was pretty good, you know, as children go. Um... But one night, Sunday night, Sunday after after church, I don't remember when it was, but some friends and I were down in the basement of the church running around. We were probably playing tag or playing hide-and-seek or some game in the basement. And, And the Sunday school superintendent of the church saw us down there, and man, he just reamed us out for running in the basement of the church, for having fun in church. And, of course, after he reamed us out, he went to my dad, who was the pastor of the church, and made sure my dad knew that I was running in the church My dad handled that brilliantly. He said, I'll take care of it. He talked to me about it. But he was very kind, understanding. And I I have such positive memories of how my dad dealt with that. But what has intrigued me after that happened, maybe a few months later, we had our church elections. And at that day, we elected Sunday school superintendents. And this man had been the Sunday school superintendent for 12, 15 years. I don't remember exactly. But that year, he didn't win Sunday school superintendent. He lost the election to somebody else. And what was intriguing to me is that from that day forward to the end of his life, he never again set foot in the church. And he basically turned his back on God. I can't help but make a connection between the way he treated children and what was really going on in his heart about his relationship with Christ. There is some connection between our sensitivity, our compassion, our attitude, our perspective, our priorities about children, and our relationship with Christ. It's connected. Marva Dawn says, The agenda of the church should be set by the weakest among us. And I've been running that idea through my mind and I'm assuming there's probably some tension to that. Some tension that sort of keeps the, holds that in balance, but there is some there's tr- definitely truth to what she's saying. Because we live in a world and the church is it, often mirrors society unfortunately. And so we become enamored with faster, bigger, stronger, and that leaves the weak and the vulnerable behind cuz we're about being impressive and how, children aren't going to help us be more impressive we're about we're we're about you know being doing doing greater things and sometimes our attitude is children sort of slow us down and often the mindset of the church is Real ministry is working with adults. Everybody else, we relegate to children. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. Children are precious to God. And if the angel says, to Zechariah that one of the ways in which John is going to prepare hearts to receive Christ is that fathers' hearts are turned to their children. It has something to say to us about what our hearts how our hearts are turned or not turned toward children who are vulnerable and in many ways the least among us, and something in me. Can't help but wonder if maybe, just maybe, one of the most significant ways of preparing our hearts and, and letting God do something spiritually deep in us is as much about maybe sitting down and spending time playing games with children or reading to children as it is listening to another Christian radio program. Or, or as much involving ourselves in teaching or helping in a class for children as by engaging ourselves again in a class that's geared to us. Or spending time listening engaging our youth as it is reading another article in a Christian periodical. And it's not as though those things are unimportant. We need to nurture our souls. We need to grow and we need to continue to, to develop our souls. But somehow we have bought into the idea that it's all about us and that we have come to see that we are, that we are most spiritual by being honestly a bit self-centered. When the reality is we read over and over and over again that when we give ourselves to the least among us, we are doing the work of God. And when we do the work of God, when we humble ourselves, when we give ourselves in a way that we may, not, we may see nothing back in return... It says something about the priority of our hearts and the openness in our lives and God can work with that. And I've discovered in my own heart that often the deepest work of the Spirit that God does in me is not through what I might consider the fantastic or the the uncommon, but in the daily, ordinary times of life and ministry and service And giving of myself in ways that no one may ever notice. And I may never see anything back from it. But because it's right and because it's the Spirit of Christ who came into this world as an infant. So during this Advent season, as we wait and prepare for the coming of Christ, what do our hearts look like? What are our hearts? How sensitive are our hearts to a word of truth that people may speak to us? How sensitive are our hearts to the priority, God's priority of children who are among us? How ready are we to prepare the soil of our hearts for the coming of Christ in whatever way he chooses to come? Holy Father, we pray that you will help us to understand, to see, to have your priorities and to have hearts that are sensitive and open to you. speak into our souls. Prepare us. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.
0: Please stand and join us as we sing.
1: Follow the star to a place unexpected.